Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We're waiting for the release of the video from the latest deadly school shooting in the U.S. Three families sent their children to Covenant School in Nashville today, not knowing their children would never return. The head of the school, a substitute teacher, and a custodian were killed, too. Can you imagine? Of course you can. Because at this point in this country, you've either lived through a mass shooting or you've imagined it. We cannot keep having the same conversations over and over again. Tonight, we try to find a different way to talk about it. Plus, listen to this 2017 duet from Dolly Parton and Miley Cyrus. Living in a rainbow land, sky's blue and things are grand. Did you hear those inflammatory words there about rainbows? Tonight we're going to talk about why that song was deemed too controversial by one Wisconsin elementary school. And Gwyneth Paltrow's accuser took the stand in that ski collision trial today, and his story was very different from hers. We're going to play for you what happened in court. But let's begin with the latest school shooting in Nashville today. I want to bring in my panel, Los Angeles Times columnist Elsie Granderson, star of CNN, John Berman, former Senate candidate Joe Pinion, and commentator Anna Navarro. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Before we start, let me just bring everybody up to speed about what we know about this school shooting at this hour. So police say the suspect had attended that elementary school, may have resented going there. There's some belief that there was some resentment for having to go to that school. Uh, don't have all the details of that just yet. And, uh, and that's why this incident occurred. Police say they're still investigating whether the suspect uh, identified as transgender and whether that played any role whatsoever. They say the suspect was a 28-year-old Nashville resident armed with two AR-style weapons and a handgun and killed by police at the scene. Police say they found the shooter's writings and detailed maps of that school. Okay, so let me bring in our panel now. So, John, um, as I said, we can't keep having the same circular conversation. We have it all the time. You and I have reported on these all the time. I'm not sure what to do differently. I'm not sure what we can do differently at this point. Look, you said you're going to start with what we know. What we know is six people are dead including three children. The names, Evelyn Dickhouse, Haley Scruggs, William Kinney, Catherine Kuhn, Cynthia Peake, Mike Hill. We know they're dead. Nine-year-olds. Three of them, nine-year-olds. Everything else, to an extent, is background noise at this point, right? It's just different sets of facts. Six people dead. Next week, it'll be 12. The week after that, it'll be 24. What I continue not to understand is why everyone has to be against this, right? Everyone has to be against it. I know that sounds trite, but I'm assuming everyone's against it. So why can't people agree to get in a room and talk about it? Just get in a room and talk about it. If some people think it's about guns, that's fine. If some people think it's about mental health, that's fine. If some people think it's about a third thing, that's fine. Get in a room, talk about it, argue about it until you come up with a few things you agree with that can get the country together to work to end this or at least slow it down. Why don't we do that, Elsie? Well, we have. Right. I think the problem is, is that the it to talk about it, the it continues to be a moving target because every mass shooting is different. 
So every incident of gun violence is different. And so when we get into that room, we need to be specific in terms of what exactly are we talking about. You mentioned a uh, mental health conversation. Yes, that is one aspect of it. We don't know if it's an aspect of this particular shooting, but we know that based upon history, that mental health is a part of the conversation. But we need to be specific in terms of how we're going to address it and not just say gun control, because that doesn't tell us anything whatsoever. It's too blanketed. I just feel, again, that if we're, we're talking about what we can't do because we don't have enough information yet, yes, they're all different, but in some ways they're all the same. They're often perpetrated by AR-style rifles. That's just the truth. At this point in time, that's the truth. And they are people with some sort of beef or mental health issue. That just seems to be a commonality. Joe, what's your suggestion? Look, I, I think first and foremost we have to have compassion for those victims, for those families, for that community that was impacted. Uh, so we have to start there. I think, again, uh, to your point, there are multiple factors. I think the overwhelming issue is that we do not have national best practices for preventing school shootings, uh, that we have these conversations, be it about the guns, be it about the mental health. Uh, for me, the issue we don't talk about enough is the infrastructure, uh, because to me, uh, a lot they of They shot this- their way through a door. Well, I think the reality is uh, that we don't have 21st century infrastructure, and I think that can be but attributed to what would that to. look like? Well, I think you have to look at hardening those classrooms. You have to look at hardening that infrastructure. But what I mean, about when it's the supermarket? But what about when it's the Walmart? But what well, about I, look, so when I, it's the I, movie I, I think, I think, I think for, So I think to your point, right, when we start talking about it's a moving target, what are we talking about? I think specifically when we talk about school shootings, I think that it is an underappreciated reality that whether you're trying to uh, secure a police station, whether you're trying to secure an Air Force Base, they really talk about bringing more guns. They often talk about what is the infrastructure changes that can be made to ensure that the guns never actually make it through the doors to a place where they can actually harm people. So I think that that is an underappreciated reality that hopefully we can now talk about, even if you look at what happened at Uvalde, what are the best practices that we can put in place for pennies on the dollar to make sure that those classrooms are more secure and making sure that those campuses don't actually have the gunmen on them in the first place. Look, I... I agree with you that we have to have compassion, but I also think we have to have incredible anger and outrage in this country. It is time that we as Americans say we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. I just saw a picture coming over here of the congressman that represents that district in Nashville glorifying guns, glorifying the type of guns that perpetrated on this his killing Christmas today. Card. Christmas on his Christmas card with his, with his little children. We'll, we'll, we'll yes, it is absolutely disgusting. And you know what I think it takes? I think it takes every American imagining that that is someone you love or a child you know or you love or from your family that could be at that level of risk. I can tell you that every time I hear one of these stories, today when I heard that, I have, my husband has grandchildren who go to private schools that are parochial. I thought of them immediately. And I'm sure that's the case for you and for you and for you and for you. We all know. I have, I thought guns were not my issue. And I would, you know, talk around it, as so many people in the political sphere do. And then my cousin got killed at Pulse. And so if we don't all realize that this is now our issue and uniquely an American issue, why does this only happen in the United States? What is wrong with us? Is it the water? Is it the air? Or is it the cowardly politicians who are beholden to the NRA? Yes. 
I mean, or is it the proliferation of guns? I mean, sometimes we have this conversation without saying guns, which I find so peculiar. Well, well, it's all of it. And again, it's about identifying what aspect of gun violence we want to address at a time. Because, yes, there are school mass shootings, there are church mass shootings, but there is gun violence happening in urban America every day, which is also part of the tally in terms of Americans being killed by guns. And so it's about not just getting together and being emotional, but saying, okay, this is a super large problem. Let's identify one aspect of it. If it's going to be mental health, then Demi Republicans present some legislation that addresses mental health you and stop using do, it as a You can't just do mental shield. health or guns. But, LC, no, you can you do have, mental health and ban assault yeah, weapons. You, you can, I, I, you can I, do I, more I, than one, but my, right. my point being is that the important part is find something. Do you know that's not even a unified definition of mass shootings? We don't have... I thought it was four or more, more than four. No, it's not unified. There's some some system says, you know, it's one in four. I think Mother Jones used a different stat. Right. The gun violence archives use a different stat. The U.S. government doesn't actually have a right. definition mm-hmm. of mass shootings. So it's, well, it's, well, like hold it's a on, moving target for a lot of reasons. For this conversation, I do want to bring in one of the elements, and that is the incredible proliferation of these AR-15 style or AR style rifles. And we have with us our special guest, Todd Frankel, who has uh, who has done a deep dive on this in terms of reporting for The Washington Post. So, Todd, bring us up to speed. When did these AR-style rifles become so popular? It's been a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, Just within the last 20 years, have they really jumped onto the scene? Um, You know, going back in, there was the assault weapons ban that ended in 2004. And back then, you know, maybe one to two percent of guns made in the U.S. were AR-15-style weapons. And today it's one in four. Um, So if you just look back since uh, 2012, since the new the year of the, the Newtown shooting, about two-thirds of the AR-15s that are on the market now have been made since then. So it's only been within the last decade. So these were unusual weapons, you know, not, not too long ago, and now they're commonplace. And in fact, it's the best-selling rifle in America. And what I thought was so interesting from your reporting, one of the things, it was designed for the military, as we know. In fact, the gun makers saw it as, quote, overkill for home use. They didn't think that it would be as popular as it is now, because who would need it for home use if you're yeah. a civilian, right? That's exactly right. Um, you know, they, they were suspicious of it. Um, at their trade shows, they kept it at the back. They were, it was um, behind uh, barricades and only law enforcement were allowed back there. You know, some of the AR makers in the early days, they talk about, you know, being, being flipped off by NRA members. I mean, they were not welcome at these events. Um, and that's changed, right? So after the ban, the assault weapons ban ended in 2004, you know, once the large gun makers of the, you know, of the industry got behind it, that's when things changed. But before that, you're right, you know, it was, they didn't see a market for it. They're like, well, why would a hunter want this? Why would someone need this for hunter protection? But that changed very quickly. Hey, Joe, um, during the assault weapons ban, as we just put up there, mass shootings went down. After it expired, mass shootings went up. Does Look, that, is I, that not demonstrable proof that it would help to have an assault weapons ban? And not only do I not think it's demonstrable proof, I think that the experts have said... What do you that call that? Uh, look, I, I think that the reality is uh, that most people who are more expert than I am have said that the data on the ban uh, is a mixed bag, that you cannot say concretely that the ban is the reason why these shootings went down or up. I but think when you at look the at that graph, day, doesn't it seem pretty compelling that the sh- mass shootings went up as soon as it ended? I mean, I pretty think... Pretty substantially look, there? Look, I, Again, I don't want to diminish the reality of the fact 
that we have children that are being used for target practice by crazy people. And we have to do something. And so I think that the reality, that has to start with bringing people in, not pushing people away. There are the fact that this nation is founded by people who have a love for their constitutional rights, specifically the Second Amendment, calling them crazy or saying that they're glorifying it uh, for expressing a constitutional right that we might not actually think about, I think does a disservice if the goal is to bring more people to the table to have that conversation. The number one killer of kids in 2021 is guns. Well, the number I, one killer. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm, not, I'm, but, look, but, I'm just but, saying, if I, that's the problem, you have to diagnose the problem. You have to be honest with the problem. The, we're, we're the bouncing, number one killer. We're, we're bouncing all over the place. If we're going to talk about school shootings, let's talk about it. To LZ's point, I think, again, if we're talking about the number one killer for children, it was the number one killer for black children a long time ago. And no one is talking about the people that are getting killed every single well, day. That's not in true urban that nobody's health. talking about no, it. Respectfully, I, I don't think we are. And we by the way, just because we haven't solved one problem doesn't mean that we I think it is an underappreciated reality of everyday life in urban America. Fair enough. And I think that the harder but, truth is that if we're going to have that conversation, that. that is a illegal gun problem, which is the largest portion of the gun violence that most people experience on a daily basis. Mr. Frankel's yeah, point, one of, something that also has changed dramatically, drastically in the last 20 years since the assault weapons ban uh, expired is the nature of the NRA, where, you know, he was talking about how members didn't like to have them around. Now, the funding of the NRA, which is in a heap of legal, legal and funding problems, but the funding of the NRA is largely from manufacturers, much more so than it was before. Before it was a member-based organization. Now it's the manufacturers who make these guns that are funding we, the NRA. Um, quickly, Elsie, I have to go soon. Well, I was going to say we also need to note that 9-11 happened and that fear in this country shot through the roof. And if you think about it, whenever fear hits this country, gun sales spikes, whether it is mass shooting or terrorist attack. Good point. Um, And thank you very much, Todd, for all of your reporting and sharing that with us. Next, I'm going to speak to the local council member who raced to that school today. We're learning more details tonight about the shooting at a Nashville elementary school. Joining me now is Nashville Metropolitan Council member Russ Pulley, who was at the scene today and helped keep children calm. Councilman, thank you very much for being here. Tell us what the scene was like today. Uh, Well, the scene was not very good, as you can imagine. I first arrived at the scene uh, uh, where the shooting occurred. Uh, they were pretty locked down by the time I got there, and then I just transitioned to an area where I could be of most help. So I moved uh, on to the church where the families were being reunited with their children. That was quite a process, and the children were kept separate from them for a while so that they could do this in a very deliberate and responsible way. So uh, I was able to interact with the children and interact with the families who are waiting for that uh, reuniting to occur. I can't imagine, Councilman. Yeah, I mean, I just Uh, want to ask you about that because I can't imagine what the parents were like waiting to see their children and making sure that their children were safe. And so what were the kids saying to you? What were you saying to them during that time? Well, I was being basically a guy in a classroom because the kids were huddled into their, in their classrooms uh, down in a fellowship hall in the church, and uh, they were acting like it was just another day at school. So I was just basically trying to interact as if I was visiting a school for a day, trying to keep their mind off of what was going on. And so they were very much uh, interacting like they would normally. 
the scene upstairs above that in the sanctuary, which is where the parents were, was much different. And uh, so interacting with the parents uh, was a bit different, as you can well imagine, waiting for to be reunited with your child after such a tragic event. Yeah, what were, they, what were the parents like? Well, of course, they were emotional. And, uh, uh, you know, all the parents didn't receive good news. So that was, uh, that was tough. Very tough moment. Yeah. Um, had the kids that you were talking to, had they seen anything? Were all of these nine-year-olds who were killed, do you know if they were all in one classroom? I don't know any of the details because, uh, as I said, I was with the families. So I have really no detailed information about what went on there. And my conversations with the children were not as a witness interviewer. Uh, they were basically just trying to interact with them and make sure they were happy during a time when, uh, you know, this could be stressful for them. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the Christmas card. We were talking about it in our previous segment. It's uh, from a Republican U.S. congressman, whom you perhaps know, Andy Ogles. And the Christmas card that he sent out is with um, he and I assume his wife holding what look like AR-style rifles. I can't see it clearly enough to see if the kids are also holding guns. I can't tell. Two of them are. Okay. At at least one is maybe two. What are your thoughts on on a Christmas card like that? No, I don't like it. No, I don't think very many people do. I did see it. Uh, but again, my thoughts are with the families right now, and it's really a raw, emotional time for us here. Uh, of course, I don't like anything like that from a public figure. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know how that helps the situation. And in terms of the families there right now, were you there when they, the, the parents actually were able to hug and kiss their children? Yes, and it was done very systematically. Uh, You know, we want to make sure and uh, do it the right way and reunite uh, uh, the the people with the right parent parent with the right child. And I commend the school for uh, how they handled this. Uh, They were were incredible today. I commend the police department. Those two did this jointly, and uh, I thought it was well done, well handled, given the circumstances. So, yeah, it was great to see... um, Parents reunited with their child, their children under such circumstances. But again, you know, my thoughts are with those who didn't have such good news as well. This is tough for everybody who is a part of the covenant community in this in this city. Our thoughts are with them, too, and you. Thank you very much, Councilman. Thank you. Now to this, major protests in Israel over plans to make sweeping changes to the legal system. Critics call that a power grab. Now Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is backing down. All of that next. Okay, hold that thought for a second. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu delaying a judicial overhaul plan today amid historic protests and a general strike. This is a controversial proposal that would give the government much more control over the nation's judiciary. Opponents say the plan threatens the foundations of Israeli democracy. Netanyahu's firing of his defense minister for criticizing this plan sparked these massive protests and strikes. I'm back now with my panel. John, 
huge protests, the biggest in Israel's history over this. Yeah, there's never been anything like this uh, on the streets of Israel. Not since its founding have you seen millions of people on the streets like this. And yes, it's a fight over judges, but and that's significant. The policy proposal is significant, but it's more, to me, a, a proxy fight over the future of Israel, a pivot point here. Does it want to be the secular democracy, which it has been since its founding, or is it going to turn into a religious nationalist state, which it is trending, and much of the population does want that. And you're seeing these two population centers at loggerheads over this, and you saw it come to a head on the streets. And yes, it's paused right now, and they're going to come maybe reach a deal, ultimately, of the judges, or they won't, but that won't solve these two huge trends that are colliding and may not be able to coexist together. This rings a bell to you, LZ, on some level? <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to think about January 6th, right? It's hard not to think about a dictator or dictator-like presence trying to manipulate. Don't make that face, bruh. He's been indicted oh, twice. God. Let's not do oh, this. Mod. Seriously? Seriously? And counting. And counting. Do I mean, really? what, about, what about authoritative? Would that... Does that sound better to you? Look, I, I, I want to let LZ finish, but I mean, for Thank me, you, I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> all right. Look. So hold on, hold on. Go ahead. So you feel that that there is about some of the same power grab so, type. So of- yeah, I think there's a reoccurring theme. That is, when you have a an authoritarian type of person who's insecure, they don't hesitate to try to use the every power that's in their levers to try to make sure they maintain that power. I believe it was uh, was it Chile. They just got rid of their president for trying to do like the exact same thing. So it's not as if what's happening in Israel is just unique or not even unique to democracy. It's just the latest example of when you have an authoritarian figure who goes unchecked, they're going to try to go as far as you let them. So I, I think it's a little different. And I think that it's different because Israel is different, right? You're talking about a nation founded effectively as a Jewish state, even though there is a long secular history. I think for me, I compare it not to January 6th, but to September 11th. Right, that we have reached a point now where there are people who are born, who are living, who are adults, who weren't alive when those towers came tumbling down. And if you look at the history of Israel, right, even the people who were more secular trending, they all understood that Israel was born out of this crucible, this desire to actually codify Jewish existence. And so as you get further and further away from this founding of this Jewish state of Israel, a nation that does not have a constitution the way that we have, the question becomes, who are those people, those elders with the white hair that remember why Israel exists and are trying to create safeguards to make sure that it doesn't actually go out of existence. Now, you can have a conversation about is he going about it the right way. Certainly, there are people in the streets who are arguing perhaps uh, certainly not going the way he thought it was going to go. But the conversation is critical, not just for the people of Israel, not just for the Arabs who live in Israel, but certainly for the safety and security of the world moving forward, including our interests here at home in the United States. Well, look, where I I see it as very different from January 6th is that January 6th was based on a lie. This is based on on very factual events that are happening in Israel right now. I I have tremendous respect for the people that are protesting, for the people that are out in the streets. I have tremendous respect for the Israeli government officials that have resigned as a result of this. Something that we saw for four years never happened, right, under Trump. They just turned the other way or they just, oh, we have to be here because there needs to be governance. We saw the... Israeli consul general here in New York, it's a very important position, frankly, in the Foreign Service, resign immediately, issue a very strong statement and letter of resignation. And I 
you know, we saw it in Puerto Rico, to your point about Chile. We saw it in Puerto Rico where people took to the streets and they got rid of a corrupt, ineffective, horrible governor. People like Ricky Martin were showing up protesting. And here in America, I feel like we have lost our initiative and that sense of outrage and that idea that we can change, that we can righteously change something But people do protest here. What I think is interesting is obviously millions of people here turn out as well and protest. But in this case, in Israel, the prime minister, it gave him pause. Because you had members of the military who were threatening not to show (laughs) up if called up. I mean, this was at a whole different, this was at a whole different level. And you're also dealing with like a larger percentage of the population that was on the street all at once there. Now, this was serious. This was, the, you know, a significant chunk of the population rising up and saying, Halas, which is enough, enough. We're not going to take this anymore. Now, Netanyahu, like, don't count him out in this. This guy is one of the savviest politicians that has ever been put on the face of this earth. He is a survivor. And, and he... But how does he thread this needle if millions of people don't want him to do He takes the air out of the balloon over the next two weeks and then passes something almost as much as he wanted to get through this time, but maybe not quite as much. Or bet that they won't take to the streets again in three weeks. John, I I, I won't profess to be some sort of, like, you know, foreign policy expert, but how is it possible that he believes, given the fact that he's under investigation, that he can go ahead and do some sort of major changes and reforms to the judicial system that appears to benefit him. Because he's got the votes. Well, I, That's the problem. He's right now in, in the he, has, he has the government, but it doesn't look like based upon no, the no. streets that he has the votes. That's exactly. He does, he does, well, but their government runs. He has the majority inside the Knesset to pass what he wants to pass. If he keeps them together, in theory, if he wants to have these people on the streets, he can push this through. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think most of the people in the streets aren't worried about the indictments against Benjamin Netanyahu. They're worried about their everyday liberties living in the Jewish state of Israel. So I think that is the focus of why they're in the streets. And I think the schism becomes the people who come from yesteryear, the people who are looking forward, what will the Jewish state of Israel stand for moving forward? I think that's a conversation that's happening every day. And don't think that the rockets being fired by the Iranians don't give Benjamin Netanyahu the leverage he needs to remind people about those founding ethos of that nation. Okay. On an entirely different note, now to this. The song Rainbow Land by Dolly Parton and Miley Cyrus sounds warm and fuzzy. But you know you can't trust those rainbows. Scandal. That's why a Wisconsin elementary school is removing it from a concert for first graders. Confused? We'll explain next. listen to Dolly Parton all day long. That was part of Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton's debut, well, sorry, duet, Rainbow Land. First graders in Waukesha, Wisconsin, were planning to sing it at their spring concert, but it was banned. Why? Well, a statement from the school district says, quote, they determined the song could be deemed controversial 
in accordance with the policy. End quote. My panel is back with me. Can we all just agree that when you're banning Dolly Parton, you've truly lost your way? This is why we can't have nice things. This, honestly, Anna, what are we to make of the fact that they couldn't sing about Rainbow Land? Because here, let me tell you the really racy, controversial lyrics. (sighs) Wouldn't it be nice to live in paradise where we're free to be exactly who we are? Uh Uh-oh. Let's all dig down deep inside, brush the judgment and fear aside, make wrong things right and end the fight. Listen, what can I tell you? I mean, this is not rocket science. Uh, Rainbows are a symbol of LGBTQ, and this is an insane extension of the homophobia and all of the banning of everything LGBTQ going on in my state of Florida, where people have lost their damn mind and and taking fire everywhere else. If they're going to ban rainbows, they're going to have to take it up with God and Mother Nature. I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, if you're coming after Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton is the patron saint of puppies and (laughs) butterflies. What is wrong with these people? The homophobia has completely affected their brain activity. Dolly Parton is a national treasure, I think. We all agree. Do we all agree on that? Joe, can we all agree? Okay. Finally, we have agreement at this table. <laughs> People can come together about Dolly Parton. Here's what not only Let's she have the Dolly Parton saint, develop gun policy. A pup, we should. Mm. Not only is she the patron saint of puppies, as you say, but she also has Dolly Parton's Imagination Library is a book gifting program that mails free, high quality books to children from the age of birth to five, no matter their family's income. They've mailed two million books each month globally. Poison. (laughs) Spreading poison. There's this this belief still that sexual orientation and gender identity are learned behaviors, that you can be nurtured or taught or exposed, you can catch it. And it's like, there's no science to back this up, and yet we have all this policy that's actually being rooted in this nonsense. The amazing moral authority that is the uh, former state legislator in Florida who was the sponsor of what was dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill just pled guilty for fraud for stealing COVID funds. That was the moral compass that the Florida legislature was counting on in banning all of this stuff. In full circle, Dolly Parton actually donated to help find a a vaccine for COVID. Because she's an angel. (laughs) Because she's an Uh, angel. Joe, you're not going to escape this conversation. Go ahead. Look, first of all, I I feel like I'm Will Ferrell in in the campaign. I do not want to live in Rainbow Land with (laughs) with the cotton candy unicorns and the pots of gold and the socialism. No, look, this is the insanity, the idiocy that is the result of people not listening to each other anymore. We have parents that showed up that were concerned about things. Whether you agree with those concerns or not, they should not be called crazy. We should have civil dialogue. They shouldn't end up on the terrorist watch list, right, which has happened. So I just think at some point, maybe we all take a step back now and realize that if Dolly Parton can't even sing along with the children, then something has gone terribly rotten in Denmark, and perhaps we should listen to each other, we should come together in the love, and whether you believe in socialism or not, Rainbow Land is a wonderful place. Yeah, Denmark we should was all be able to get also, together. Also, by the way, in Waukesha. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very afraid right now for Barney the, the dinosaur. Because he's purple. Banned. And, you know, that's, Barney was that, terrifying, that's, that's, first yes. of all. I mean, <laughs> they, they, that dinosaur should have never been unleashed on children in the first place. Oh, my God. And, and, and the poor green M&M who had to give up her comfortable shoes. I mean, it's just, it's manufactured culture wars for political purposes, and I absolutely will call anybody banning Dolly Parton crazy. Local. Well, you guys will be very happy to hear that they have substituted a different rainbow song. So it's not like they're completely opposed to rainbows. It's going to be the Rainbow Connection by Kermit the Frog. 
Come on. I love that song. A known <laughs> socialist. Also a great a song. known socialist, by the way. <laughs> and journalist, which is even worse than a socialist. Kermit T. Frog is, you know, I mean, how can they have a song with Kermit in it? Drain the swamp. Don't start trouble, John. Don't start trouble. If they hear this, they will ban it in a minute. We sing in the same key. The slippery slope from safe places to no more Dolly Parton. Is it Dolly or is it Miley Cyrus that really got Wisconsin upset? It is a duet. Yeah, I don't know. Molly's Molly's godmother. Don't blame me for that. I'm just saying. (laughs) And as we've agreed, she should be all of our fairy godmothers. Um, All right. Well, I think we've resolved that. Uh, Minute. (laughs) Meanwhile, Gwyneth Paltrow is back in court today in this trial that we've been covering over this 2016 ski collision. Today, we heard her accuser on the stand. So we've got the details of that next. Gwyneth Paltrow back in court today. She's defending herself in a lawsuit over an alleged ski collision back in 2016. Today, we got to hear from Terry Sanderson, the 76-year-old man alleging that Paltrow hit him on that beginner ski slope in Utah. I just remember everything was great, and then I heard something I've never heard at a ski resort, and that was a blood-curdling scream. Just, I can't do it. It was... And then, boom. And it was like somebody was out of control and going to hit a tree and was going to die. And that's what I had until I was hit. Okay, Paltrow did not seem to agree with that based on her facial expression. I'm back now with my panel. Also joining us is our CNN Tonight's Gwyneth Paltrow correspondent, senior. Scott Jennings, senior correspondent, Scott Jennings. Scott, what I like about your expertise in this is that you don't know very much about <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow, but what you do know makes you very uncomfortable. Yeah, um, and I was remin- uh, reminiscing with my wife today. Gwyneth Paltrow almost broke up our marriage. How did that happen? Well, in 2000, when we had just started dating, I allowed my wife, then girlfriend, to pick the movie, and we went to see this stinker. It was called Bounce. And I came out of the theater thinking... I should maybe end the relationship, but then I prayed to God, and he told me to be patient. And so we ultimately got married and had a family. Oh, thank but goodness. This since has then, a good ending. Since then, because she chose that movie, she's not been able to pick any of the other movies in the last wow. 20 years. So wow. she's sort of still paying her Gwyneth tax yes. on our relationship. So I can see why you're an expert. Thank you. That <laughs> also you're helps me. You're going to be a witness to this trial. Yeah. The lawyer's going to call you to the stand well, tomorrow funny you should funny you should mention that, John, because a key trial viewer, somebody who's been watching it, sent in some evidence into the trial, which they have then uncovered some messages is on a real? chat board. Yes. Okay, what is this? Yes, it? it's real. Well, this I, is, I can't I, tell. <laughs> anyway, they uncovered some messages from the supposed victim's friend, Ramon, mm-hmm. who says at the time was this happened. Was he Hispanic? I don't know. I'm just reading. Yeah, I'm Ramon. Uh, but anyway, he was saying, oh, Gwyneth knocked out Terry today or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was Gwyneth before there was any. Gwyneth knocked out Terry? That's what the guy said. <laughs> now, at the same time, what you heard him about the screaming was refuted by Gwyneth's ski instructor, who oh. said she's a good skier oh. and she would never scream going down the side Let's of the mountain. Let's hear that. Let's yes. hear that. Let's hear from the ski instructor because I yeah. feel that he would know what really happened on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Did you ask him, are you okay? I had to. That's The whole time I'm removing skis and, and getting ready to help them up, I'm asking, are you okay? Are you okay? So the answer, did was you a, ask him if he was okay? I did, and he was affirmative. He said yes. Two patrollers were just making a, a ski by, and one of them came up to us and said, do you, got, do you need any help? 
and Mr. Ramon, Mr. Sanderson uh, spoke to each other. I was still kneeling on, on the snow, you know, getting their skis ready. And um, whatever they said, they turned uh, to the patroller and said, no, we don't need help. Can, can I tell you something? Yes. So la- last week we were talking about Gwyneth Paltrow on The View because she was on a podcast and basically all she eats is bone broth and vegetables. She weighs... she's uh, doing a cleanse. Okay. No, no, no. This no, is, no, no. This this is, is her daily... Thing. Yeah, her, you've got to read more into Gwyneth. We all know a lot right. about Gwyneth I mean, Paltrow. So I'm, I'm having Gwyneth. a very hard time believing that somebody who only eats bone broth and vegetables can knock out uh, a guy. I mean, if I had no. skied into the guy, that would be more believable. But it's, but it's like, though, she doesn't... I mean, it's like she, momentum, though. It's like if you drop a penny off the Empire State Building, it would still... You realize not they John were Berman on the bunny hill, right? <laughs> they were not on the moguls. I'm just so saying, the level of mo- Physics. Have so you, you ever been on a bunny hill? No, I would. I said this last week. I don't understand any of these rich people. They're out there on these skiing around. The poor people ski, too. I... Do you well, think these are harder. poor people? No. Sorry, but not only this is the beauty of Scott and why he's our correspondent. Not only does he not know much about Gwyneth Paltrow, except that he does know she creates products for lady parts, yes. as he says. <laughs> he also has never skied. Yeah. So it makes he's me the perfectly. Perfect. Okay, so the yeah, bunny hill is where little kids go and learn how to ski. They they ski without poles. They get on this thing called the magic carpet. I've been on it a lot too because I've been skiing for about twenty five years and I've never gotten past the bunny hill. <laughs> wow. So I'm having a very hard time believing. That Gwyneth Paltrow could, um, the gravity's all wrong on me. It's, uh, well, I, 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 agree. I just think this is all just residue from when Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan. That's the, what really is up. <laughs> that's what's happening. That's yeah. what's really happening here. He's trying to get revenge. He's, he's angry going, about Yeah, that. exactly. And I am too still, to be quite honest <laughs> with this, you. This is a great country, by the way. We have spent seven years litigating this. People that are enormously smart and talented have spent and wasted all their time on this. We have people sitting in the courtroom. That's not exactly true. He just came forward yeah. with the lawsuit more recently. Well, wait a minute. This happened seven years ago? 2016. Yes, 2016. Oh my gosh, he weighed even less back then. And I'm just saying, these cases that are seven years old. That does make us a great country. <laughs> wow. make a great point. John, wow. clearly you have some start of, start important thoughts on Well, this. I, and actually, I've enjoyed this so much more just listening to this Scott and Anna. Anna was looking at Scott like, where am I? It's never like this on The View. Like, who is this guy? Yeah. And, and why is he saying this? Oh, yes, if I went on The View, it would be like an Look, alien. I think this, this case is actually, this case, on, on, which is televised, is actually really relatable in the sense that it's just two people arguing over what happened, and it's it, you don't watch it, and it's not like all the highfalutin lingual language in most of the trials you see on TV. This is like, did the guy run into her, or did she run into the guy? If you had to put twenty, riveting. if you had to put twenty bucks on it right now, who's going to win? I don't put twenty bucks on anything. You're going to bet with me. You're going to bet with <laughs> well, you're on money, Gwyneth's but side. I, I, you're on Gwyneth's side. You're. Not on Gwyneth's side because you're angry about Shakespeare and Love. Um, yes, so I am. So you're on Terry Sanderson's side. Yes, and he has good hair too. I gotta tell, I'm I'm transfixed by the guy's lawyer, who I, who is like the female version of my cousin Vinny. Oh, we need to play oh. that. Okay, we need to play that for a second. So here is Terry Sanderson's lawyer, who seems to be, I would say, excited about getting <laughs> to cross-examine Gwyneth Paltrow. You were wearing goggles, a helmet. Yes. Okay, kind of looked like everybody else on the slope. That's always my intention. Okay. Probably had a better ski outfit, though, I bet. I still have the same one. May I ask how tall you are? I'm just under 5'10". Okay. I am so jealous. I think I'm shrinking, though. You and me both. I have to wear four-inch heels just to make it to 5'5". Well, they're very nice. Oh, thank you. And you're not trained in accident reconstruction. Me? Yeah. No. 
What's happening there? How, however, it's what's Oscar happening? performance. That's what's happening however there. However, the trial turns <laughs> out. This is the remake of My Cousin Vinny. This is, this is it. It is starring Gwyneth Paltrow and this woman. She, this lady's going to get like a special code for discounted goop You're right. products. That's this what's up. Thank you. eggs and candles. Thank you for bringing it home, Scott. That's what you knew you would. You always yeah. know. You have Just the piercing it. insight into these segments. Thank you very much for being here. All right. We'll be right back. Another school shooting, this time in Nashville, Tennessee. Police say a shooter opened fire there, killing three nine-year-olds and three adults at this private Christian elementary school. Police identify the shooter as a 28-year-old former student at the school. I want to bring in my panel. Catherine Schweit is the former head of the FBI Active Shooter Program. Elsie Granderson is an op-ed columnist at the Los Angeles Times. Nicholas Carson is a global editor-in-chief of Insider. Scott Jennings is our CNN political commentator. And Lauren Leader is a political analyst. Thanks to all of you for being here. Catherine, I want to start with you because you studied active shooters from, I believe, 2008 to 2013. Oh, no, sorry, 2000 to 2013. I think you studied 160 of them. What can you glean from the facts we know at this hour about this one? Boy, um, I don't know. This is a tough panel you've got tonight. So they're on fire. So I have to be careful what I say. But uh, they, you know, what we what we've learned so far is that the that we have exactly what we see a lot of situations, uh, exactly what occurs in a lot of situations. You've got an individual who has some real or perceived grievance and they formulate this plan and they buy the equipment they need to execute it. They do the surveillance and purchase their ammunition and plot their way out so that they can leave their message and, and send a message for whatever that is. And we'll see what that is, but it'll be pretty common uh, what we see in a lot of times, a very troubled person, right, who has, uh, who wants to leave their mark and, and, and say something when maybe they don't feel like they had an opportunity to voice whatever that was. Yes, I suspect it will be something that we've seen before because we've seen so many of these. And Scott, you and I have had these conversations all too many times. And I often ask you for solutions. I don't know if you have any tonight, but I just feel that we have a circular conversation always when this happens. And I want to stop having that circular conversation. And I want this to stop happening. And I just don't know what more we can say about a troubled person with access to guns going in and taking it out on little kids. Well, I'd like to see what was going on in this person's life. Uh, What do we know? We know that the police chief has indicated that there may be some resentment towards this School. Sure, but it's in. I just want to stop um, the ARs. It's an elementary school. This person is 28 years old. So, so uh, these are these are the chief's words, not sure, mine. No, I'm, just I'm, just, I'm just telling you what I'm, he said. That one is a little bit hard for me to digest because that was 20 years ago, or, or you know, 15 years ago. But go on. We also know this person wrote some kind of a manifesto, which they haven't released yet. We also know this person made diagrams, uh, which tells me there was some sort of premeditation here. So I'd like to know what was going on in this person's life because I would like to know who else knew about it. I mean, one of the, one of the things that, that strikes me as is, is really important here is did other people in this person's life know uh, that this person was potentially violent, potentially a harmful person? And if they did, did they tell anyone? And if they didn't, why not? 
That's, that's one of the things I'd like to know. This is the red flag conversation, you know, that, that some states have enacted. And, and it's not all, it's not foolproof, but that's one thing. Just before I turn it over to the panel, I, I just wanted to say, we need to, to say, God bless the Nashville police. Showed up in minutes and took care of the situation. Totally different than Ubaldi. And also, uh, God bless those parents. I mean, can, I mean, like I've got a kid who's nine years old. And the idea of dropping off your child only to have them never return. I can't even, I, I can't even. I, I don't even want to talk about, I don't even want to talk about the shooter anymore. I'm so tired of talking about these shooters because the story's the same thing over and over again. It doesn't matter. I want to talk about the fact that millions of children are living every day with terror or going to school, which is supposed to be safe. My entire life, I never once, there was not one uh, school shooting my entire childhood. Why? Because AR-15s, assault rifles were banned into the late 1990s. And so I never lived with this and millions of children are living with it. So I personally want to stop talking about the shooters, stop trying to diagnose what's happening all over the world. There's crazy people all over the world. There's aggrieved people. Only in America do we have these mass shootings day after day after day. It's not even close. The numbers are not even close. And there's a red line when you watch the numbers in the chart. It, it, changes the day it changes the day we start seeing this massive spike in shootings in mass shootings is when the assault weapons ban expired it is as simple as it gets so we are allowing our children to live like this we are prioritizing weapons over children's lives and i think millions of americans are sick of it it's really the only conversation we should be having is when are we going to ban the ars every mass shooting has been an ar-15 for the last year yeah. Plus, yeah, all you can do as a parent is, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, is just throw your hands up, you know? I mean, I remember Sandy Hook, and it was like, well, this will change it. You know, these things just not changing. And I don't know, we just wake up, it's going to happen again. I mean, it's going to happen again. There is a feeling of helplessness, and there is a feeling of, well, I guess we can't do anything, our kids are sitting ducks. I mean, it's got to that point where we're feeling like, well, this conversation is intractable, so I guess we'll just send our kids well, in. Cross our fingers. We're, we're treating, does, does, we're, does democracy work or not? Yes, you know, it does. That's the real question. Yes, it does. Because if it works, why are we sitting here saying there's nothing we can do? Absolutely, there, there is. There is something we can do. You we bet. can vote out these elected officials that are protecting the gun lobbies, that are protecting all these, these wings that are, that are pro-guns to the point in which there's not responsibility and accountability being used as the center of the conversation, but rather access is the center of the conversation. Access shouldn't be the center of the conversation. It wasn't in the Constitution. What does it say? Regulated militia. Regulated. Who was regulating it? Well, if you go back and look to the forefathers, it was the government. It wasn't individuals regulating themselves. Somehow, some way, the, the NRA and those who are misusing the, the Second Amendment in order to have gun proliferation have taken what we know the forefathers meant and bastardized their intent in order to allow this gun manufacturing to continue and have all this money that's, in, that's invested in, in the gun lobby. Gun, I mean, that's what it guns is. Guns are the leading cause of death now for children. I don't, I, it, none of the rest of it matters. The fact that we let this happen is, is malpractice. But if you want to know what we do about it, go look at the playbook for every town for gun safety and what Moms Demand are doing. Every day they are on state house grounds. They are in Washington every day organizing, mobilizing, and pushing for changes in state laws. And actually, they've been incredibly successful in passing 
a huge number of gun control measures in the states across the country. We need more of that. And democracy does work when we stand up and participate. But at this point, like we've also, I think the, we are so inured that that is the response, which is we feel we can't do anything. And that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, we can. You just reported on what happened in Israel. You know what? Israelis were angry about what their government were doing. They went in the streets and they protested. We have all the same rights all the same rights to petition our government for our grievances as other democracies. In fact, we created, we set the standard for that. We absolutely have the ability to change this. Catherine, what do you think as you listen to this conversation? We, we have a lot, we are making a lot of progress. Politicians be damned, I can tell you that. LZ, we have a definition for mass shootings that DOJ came up with in 2022. They just haven't really, it's been publicized, but not well enough, apparently, right? And there are things that are being done in San Jose, California. They passed a law that is certainly standing up right now that says that if you own one of those weapons, you have to have insurance so that you're going to have to you're going to have to pay for it if, if there's injury done with it. The red flag laws, I think law enforcement is asking uh, me privately. They're saying we'd like to see something that I would call an enhanced red flag law where uh, instead of having to go to court, if they go to somebody's house and they find that there's a person who's a danger to themselves or the others, they want to be able to take those guns then, not when there's an adjudication afterwards. And so I think that's something that some um uh, then there could be an adjudication, but the guns will be out of the home. I think that's something that some uh, communities are looking for. In addition to that, you know, you talked about training, training for uh, weapons before you're allowed to get them, better work on uh, suicide prevention, on understanding that more gun deaths are caused from, mm-hmm. are part of suicides in this country, uh, that a third of the homes do not have secured guns. When you have guns in your homes, a third of those homes have at least one unsecured gun. So better campaigning about secured firearms, requiring reporting when they're lost or stolen. I just read yesterday that the largest number of stolen guns that occurs is in the seat, is in cars because now mm-hmm. everybody's carrying a gun. They go into a sporting event and they tuck their gun in the car and the kids go through the parking lot and take all the guns. So we have to hone down those individual things that are going to help us to make those pro- that process, you know, take the guns out of the people's hands that are dangerous and then do it despite or in addition to these additional gun laws. Catherine, you are a font of information. <laughs> that, so was, helpful, that was so helpful to have you wrap it up. Were you going to have to say well, something? Well, I just, I, I don't know. I just, I'm just surprised to hear the lack of curiosity about the shooter's motivation. I mean, I, I mean, it's quite apparent that this person had something going on in their life. But do you think well, there was something going on in their life? But that's, but that's the point is, I mean, in, in a few of these cases, we don't like the Las Vegas shooter. I mean, I think that one's still that's a mystery. A mystery but day. But in else? most cases, yes. what's going on in this particular shooter's life that caused the chief of police to say, "I think they had a resentment about having attended a Christian school." Yes, I. Think I mean, is so. this a, is this an anti-Christian hate crime? Is no one can is interested well, in that? I guess I'm gonna need you to well, pump well, the brakes. But, on the anti, on because you don't know the religion of the shooter either. So how are you going to call I'm, it anti-Christian I'm quoting when you don't the even know? The chief who said there is a theory that the shooter had a resentment about going to the school. Yes, yes but I'm you don't quoting know what was on our air. Yeah, but tonight. you don't know if it's based upon religion or some other factor. Yeah, You're but, but I mean, the shooter, like, like the shooter uh, is on, dead, just... but millions of children are going to school tomorrow, and so it's yeah. not that I'm disinterested in what happens to the shooter, but I care more about what's happening to my kids when they get to the school yes. tomorrow. And I used to be very interested in that, but then it didn't change anything. Like right. knowing that they were disturbed. It didn't end up right. changing anything. So I've, I've changed a little bit in being that mm. interested about the shooter because 
they do all seem mostly to have mental health issues, and there were precursors. But I want to show you this. This is, we are now getting the video. The Nashville Police Department tonight is releasing this security camera footage of the suspect shooting their way into the school. Obviously, we warn you, this will be very disturbing. CNN's Carlos Suarez has more. Carlos, what have you learned? Well, Allison, uh, just a few minutes ago, authorities out here in Nashville released uh, about two minutes worth of video uh, showing the 28-year-old shooter uh, essentially um, coming into this school here. The video shows uh, the 28-year-old uh, shooting out uh, the uh, window of a, of a glass door and then eventually making uh, making themselves, making the, the, the shooter gets inside of this school. Now, the surveillance video also goes on to show uh, this shooter walking around what appears to be a hallway uh, once inside this uh, school. Uh, the shooter does have uh, this AR-style type of weapon. You can see it in the surveillance video. Uh, it is important to note here that at no point in the video that was released today do you see um, any staff members or any uh, children in it. Uh, now, for a good part of the video, uh, the shooter uh, seems to go inside of one room, spends uh, some time there, then comes right back out, and then is seen once again pointing this weapon, making uh, the shooter is, then goes from one room to another and then eventually passes down one hallway. Uh, the entire night, really, uh, the uh, Nashville Police Department has been releasing uh, photos of uh, the scene out here, uh, this front door at the building that was shot out. And so they had been giving us an indication that they were going to release this video. And so just a few minutes ago, they shared that piece of video. Again, it's about two minutes in length, and it shows a 28-year-old um, getting into the building, uh, which, according to authorities, uh, the shooter had really meticulously planned out. Uh, she, a great deal of time and effort, it appears, had been spent on planning this attack, which they believe was targeted. And so tonight, again, Allison, we are getting our first look at some surveillance video inside of the school as this shooting was taking place. Carlos, thank you very much. Um, Nicholas, it's obviously so disturbing. Oh, there's a person see. walking around the school looking for children to shoot. It's unbelievable. I mean, I've never seen this kind of imagery of a shooter in a school before. You know, I went and picked up my kids the other day. One of them was sick. It looks just like that. Right, I mean, it's just terrifying. I don't know. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, what, what more can you say about it? It's just so sickening to see that and see how quickly they were able to get into the school by shooting their way through a door. Um, Catherine, what did you think watching that? Yeah, it's kind of, it's a little surreal, right, for everybody. You notice how slowly the shooter is walking around looking for some target because they spend so much time planning for this event. And once they get there, it's almost, uh, there, there are no hail of bullets. So it's kind of a kind of a letdown. We see that with a lot of shooters. The other thing I, I noticed, there were several rounds that went through the front, through the door before uh, she came through the doorway. And then she just, got in, then, okay, all of that flurry was over. Now she's just looking, and she spent a long time, so I felt like she was looking for someone in particular, not just a student. Yeah. Um, Catherine, thank you very much for your expertise. Really great to have you join us on the panel tonight. Thanks so much. Uh, panelists, thank you very thank much you. for all of your thoughts. So the Manhattan Grand Jury investigating former President Trump's alleged role in this scheme to pay hush money to the adult film star Stormy Daniels. Well, they adjourned today without taking a vote on whether or not to indict. We'll tell you who testified today.
A key witness in Donald Trump's alleged hush money scheme appearing before the grand jury today. David Pecker, former publisher of the National Enquirer, was seen leaving the building where the grand jury is impaneled after 90 minutes. Here's what former President Trump said about the case tonight. Uh, People are pleading with the prosecutor, don't do it, don't do it, it's wrong. Even Democrats, even people that traditionally are not exactly my fans are saying, don't do it. Because I didn't do anything wrong. I did nothing wrong. We're back with our panel. LZ, Nicholas, Scott, and Lauren are back. Well, he's not wrong. We have had many Democrats on this panel saying, don't do it to Alvin Bragg because there are other cases that, not because he didn't do anything wrong, but because there are other cases that they think should go first, LZ. He's conflating the two, right? Because he is right, right? There are a lot of Democrats saying, don't do it. But it's because they want the more substantial case to go through, not this one. But with that being said, um, I don't think it really matters if he did something wrong or if he didn't do something wrong. His supporters are going to be there for him. They've already proven that. I think at this point, it's about whether or not the rest of the American people want to see a U.S. president go to jail because it's never happened before. Well, I would submit they don't. I mean, I would submit that Americans don't like to see former presidents go to jail. There's polls on this. There are polls on this. So the most recent poll is that actually more Americans than not. So 43 percent of Americans polled versus 34 percent said they want to see the president. They they believe the president that they should they believe Donald Trump should be indicted um, and that he should be subject to indictment. That that that's the polls. So his supporters clearly not. But there is a turning tide, I think, of public opinion, which believes that he should be held accountable if he breaks the law. I just want to be clear. I wasn't I, what I thought. What, what I thought you were saying is a former president. Like I think it's it's. Um, I think it's it can be upsetting to the fundamental kind of bedrock of the United States of thinking about that. But Donald Trump, when you put it but, in the Donald Trump form, it's different the, because. You know, people don't like, there are lots of yeah, critics but the of bedrock, of Well, no, fundamentally, the bedrock of American democracy is that we don't have a king and that no one is above the law. And I actually think it's as American as it gets, that if we believe in the principles on which our nation was founded, then everybody should be subject to the same laws and the same rules, and everyone should be able to be indicted if they break the law. If a, if a jury of their peers, as established in the United States Constitution, finds that there's reasonable cause, then they should be. And that's part of what, actually, that is fundamental to our system. I'm also in favor of people getting arrested and indicted if they if the prosecutor thinks it's a crime. Here's the other thing. I think people are looking at this in a 3D chess way a little too much. You know, it's not going to help Donald Trump if he's indicted and then he's indicted again and then there's another case later. And Are you sure? Because he has yeah. raised millions of dollars off of Well, that. he can raise a lot of money and he's always going to be raised a lot of money. But I'm sure if you look at his record as a person who's sort of very involved in elections, following 2016, he's lost every single one of them. Sure has. Right? And it's because of a big mess, scandal, gross stuff like this. You know, suburban voters in the Atlanta suburbs are going to look at this and they're going to look at the other seven scandals between now and whenever. And they're going to say, no, no, give us the other guy or the other lady. And here's what one of his supporters, and I know that's not who you're talking about, you're talking about suburban swing voters, but here's uh, at the Trump rally this weekend, talked about what, what this person thinks would happen if Donald Trump were indicted on this particular Stormy Daniels crime. Listen to this. She wins. 100%. If they do that, he'll be a shoe-in. If 100 million people are going to vote for him, if they do indict him, you're going to get 120 million people voting for him. Because they're, they're just, you know, you can't take, take an honest man down. 
Uh, it, it doesn't change a thing about his integrity and everything else. We all have sinned. We all have some things that we've done. Your thoughts on all this, Scott? Yeah, I, I dispute the political wisdom of believing that this indictment will deliver 50 million extra votes, <laughs> although that would be the most amazing uh, voter turnout program in the history of, of American politics. Miracle. I mean, the, the reality is, though, the people going to the rally who got in line several hours in advance, I mean, they're ride or die. No, nothing. I mean, look, he, he has a base of support that it's not going to change. It's going to be there. The only question is whether someone else in the Republican Party can, can consolidate the what I think is over 50 percent of Republicans who, who want to do something else. And right now there's one person who is in position to do that, uh, and that's DeSantis. And he's not there yet. But, but that's the thing. Analyzing this whole political situation, like no one's going to take those voters that we just showed away from Donald Trump. Nobody. The DA, Aranda Sant, no one's taking them away. So what you have to do is consolidate an anti-base uh, who just thinks it would be better if we did not have a rematch between Trump and Biden. And, you know, that's a great strategy because like 80 percent of Americans are dreading this rematch. And I think that's a message that will sell. Let's talk about Stormy Daniels. I'd love to. Uh, because, Lauren, you have a, a great angle and take on her. What do you think that she has done so effectively so I wrote a piece for Politico today called, and the headline really speaks for itself, Stormy Daniels, Feminist Hero, question mark. But I asked the question actually very seriously, and I really break it down, because when you look at the history of past presidential sex scandals, from Gary Hart to Monica Lewinsky, you know, these were women who were forced or chose to remain silent for decades. In Monica Lewinsky's case, she didn't speak publicly for 10 years. Uh, Rice did not speak publicly for 31 years. And part of it was because... They, they, were only, they, they would only lose in the public eye. And I think what's interesting and different about Stormy is that this entire case is about her wanting to speak and her trying to speak. And in fact, you know, it starts because, you know, in 2011, she tries to sell her story. Then she tries again in 2016. Um, Pecker strikes this deal with Cohen to silence her, to pay her off, to kill the story. But over and over again, she comes back to try to tell her truth. And she's certainly trying to do that every day on Twitter, which I got to say, she's a master of the medium. If you haven't seen her Twitter feed. It is really worth... And you worth. said that today was a particular gem. Oh, it was magical. I don't think it's appropriate for these airways. Basically, let me just say this. Somebody tweeted at her, Donald Trump, a, a, a Trump supporter tweeted at her, Donald Trump wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot pole. And she had a spicy oh, response. It's but instead, it was it is, it said it's a three-inch pole. But anyway, hey, hey. she only ever refers to him on Twitter as tiny. Like she has this incredible ability to use humor and, frankly, her history and her profession to emasculate him. And he, you know, his whole persona is built on this macho idea. But it's very it's it's funny, but it's also really serious because ultimately, one of the biggest issues in this country is the silencing of of women. Our inability to speak out when um, we've been, you know, when we've been, when men have tried to silence us. And in this case, she rejects that. And I really walk through in the piece, like, why that's actually important and that I hope that it actually changes things. She's uniquely able to do that in a way because she's chosen a life of, you know, let's say no boundaries. Um, Other women who might want more traditional lives and not have their sex lives, you know, splashed across all the front pages might feel differently. But I think what she's done is actually really important. And we're at this point, potentially at an indictment, really because of her. I, 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 so, I so agree with you because it's not just about being an adult film star, right? It's about being sex positive. And I think part of the reason why women are silenced is because culturally we're not sex positive, but because Stormy Dane's profession, she is. And so you couldn't handcuff her to her sexuality because she celebrates it. 
Well, and she's rejected all the norms that would have held her back from speaking out publicly. And you can say what you will about the industry. I think it can be very exploitive of women. I'm not endorsing it. But I am saying that I think in this moment, it's worth acknowledging how hard it is to speak out no matter who you are or where you come from. She's faced threats. She's had to hire extra security. It's real stuff for her. And I think we should take her seriously. I have to move on, but I sense you're itching to say something, Scott. No, no I, I celebrate her entire catalog. It's fine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, That's I, I not know. where I thought you were going. <laughs> yeah, nor, 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 I, 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 do, I do have a question for you, though. Yeah. Do, you, do you think she's a role model for young women? Oh, tough question. Uh, I think all young women should have be free to choose whatever life and profession they want. Um, I think there is something powerful and brave about being willing to confront a bully who tries to silence you, no matter what you do, no matter what your profession. I don't care who you are, where you come from. Every woman should have that right. Thank you all very much. Now to this uh, deadly tornadoes touching down in the South, killing at least 22 people. What role is the climate crisis playing in the increasingly volatile and dangerous storms? We're going to take a look at that next. Parts of the southeast ravaged by deadly tornadoes this weekend. At least 10 confirmed tornadoes hit Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee. The violent weather killing at least 22 people, including a one-year-old baby. The city of Rolling Fork, Mississippi, one of the hardest hit, with a violent tornado obliterating houses, businesses, and city blocks. You can see the aftermath on your screen. Meteorologists warn more dangerous weather could be on the way. So joining me right now, we have CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir, and my panel is back as well. So, Bill, there have been 296 tornado reports this year alone. That's the highest in six years. I think we have some um, satellite imagery of before in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, and after in Rolling Fork. And so... Can we say conclusively this is climate change? No, you can't. Uh, When it comes to the science, the confidence of scientists who study this stuff, tornadoes are way down on the confidence list Mm. because you can watch a hurricane for a couple of weeks. A tornado touches down for 30 seconds or a few minutes. Uh, The historical record is really sketchy. But... A tornado loves uh, warm, moist air. We got a lot more of that these days. Uh, It likes unpredictable shifting winds. We got a lot more of that happening. And so, yeah, the numbers are going up. And also, it's all about sort of like what they say about real estate. It's location, location, location. You can have a lot of tornadoes in an unpopulated area, and the numbers don't look that bad. But they seem to be, over time, the tornado belt that I grew up in, I, I went to high school in Oklahoma and Texas for a bit, is shifting east. It's moving across the Mississippi River. So you're seeing a lot more in the southeast. That's strange. But, yeah, I mean, we just live on a much more unpredictable planet these days. Scott, I'm guessing you have some tornado experience? Oh, well, I'm from Dawson Springs, Kentucky, uh, where the tornadoes hit, um, uh, not this past December, but the one before last. You know, every home that a Jennings ever lived in was destroyed by a tornado there. Is that right? Yeah, my dad's house was destroyed, and... uh, um, uh, the house he grew up in, his parents' house was destroyed, and his entire street virtually. Now they're rebuilding and, and coming back, but it was uh, it was the first time anyone there could remember a tornado. There's like always warnings and watches, but like in terms of actual destruction, and I think it took out like three quarters of the houses, and, and it sort of cut a swath from you know far western Kentucky all the way through uh, up. up heading east into, you know, into central. And so Kentucky. you rebuild after that. You don't think about leaving. My dad left, actually. Uh, you know, he he decided not to rebuild. Now, his neighbor, who his, he sold his lot to, they did rebuild. And a lot of people are rebuilding and, and they're trying to come back. Uh, but some people, 
didn't make that choice. You know, my dad's on up there and he's, he's semi-retired, so he had that. But, you know, some people have young families and, and that's their home and they want to raise their kids there. So uh, these, these disaster, when I saw the pictures from Mississippi, it, it reminded me an awful lot of what I saw on the ground. In I'm curious Springs. if it informed the way he rebuilt, uh, you know, stronger, more resilient. Can you afford that sort of thing? Well, just financially, truthfully, uh, what he ended up getting out of it was not near enough to rebuild the house yeah, that he owned. Sure. Um, and uh, and I, I, you know, I don't know everybody's individual financial positions, but but he just decided that he was going to do something else for a while and uh, and uh, you know try something out at the later stages of his life. But you know, a lot of people don't have that luxury. Exactly. And yeah. and wow. they're they're stuck where they are. Exactly. And so when something like this happens, it's not an instant rebuild either. If you go to these places that are destroyed. Uh, like in Western Kentucky, I mean, you can definitely tell they're still, still working on it. Well, it's poor communities that have suffered the worst of climate change. I mean, you look at what happened in Texas in terms of like the massive power outages and droughts in communities and fires in California. You know, all across the world, what you see is that it is often folks who really can't afford the worst of the impacts of extreme weather events who are most harmed by it and most displaced by it. Right. Yeah, and different from folks on the coast. The Outer Banks, you can see a beach house going, you know, maybe you don't you rebuild there. You don't make that calculation if you're living in Kentucky or, or Mississippi. Is it going to keep moving? Yeah. Is, is the Tornado Alley going to keep going That's to the east question. and the southeast? Or should people in Atlanta be like, oh. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? I mean, they're, they're figuring all of this out. But the tornado season is getting longer. It seems to be we're getting more, a little bit of that, but also more intense events clustered together on the same day. So more bad days. Is a good way to think about it. Thank you for all of that. Of for more information on how you can help the victims of the deadly tornado and the severe storms that swept through Mississippi, you can go to CNN.com slash impact. All right. So just ahead, of course, you've heard about the uh, reparations debate in San Francisco. Well, one city has already passed the reparations program. That's Evanston, Illinois. Not everybody is happy about it. We'll explain what's happening there next. With so much conversation around reparations, one city has already passed a reparations program and started distributing funds. Evanston, Illinois, says it had planned to award $25,000 in reparations to eligible residents. But so far, five years later, after they had passed this plan, the city has only spent a little more than $300,000 of the $10 million that they had promised in 2019. My panel is back with me. So this is interesting. Evanston, Illinois, decided that they wanted to do this. It was going to be $25,000 in housing grants. But now tonight, just tonight, they were talking about whether they should change it to a $25,000 cash payment to every um, eligible black resident. That has tax repercussions. So the housing grants made more sense for some people. And yet... They had been talking about this, LZ, since 2019. Mm. So not only is it a, a controversial and complicated topic to discuss, the devil's in the details. I mean, even Evanston, <laughs> Illinois, that wants to do this is having a hard time. So far, only of 650 black residents who have applied in mm-hmm. Evanston, 16 have received the money. I knew all of them. <laughs> all 16 of them. Um, I used to be an adjunct at Northwestern University. Mm. So Evanston is a, is a piece of Chicago that I, I think fondly of. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that they would want to try to do this. The execution of it, the clumsiness of it doesn't surprise me either because it is a complicated conversation, mm-hmm. but it's not a new conversation. It's a conversation that started hundreds of years ago, to be quite honest with you, because former slave owners, they got their reparations 
So it's not as if this is a new word. Mm -hmm. It's not as if the government hasn't done this multiple times already. They just haven't done it for the people who actually deserve and earned the reparations yet. That's the difference. Nicholas, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, reparations, ever since I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' big Atlantic article, I think it took up the whole issue that one time. I was like, whoa. I mean, it was a mind blower. And just for people who don't know exactly why anybody would cut a check like that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's about, you read that article, it's like, okay, People in America build wealth by owning homes. They take that, that's their equity, they pass it on. That's the loan that they use to fund things. That's how kids get go to college, even kids like, getting a loan to go to college. You know, pe- black families in that, in that part of the country and all over this country didn't get that opportunity. They had to live in different neighborhoods. They couldn't get in there. And so it's not to do with slavery. It's to do with that. And so, you know, logically, you look at it and you're like, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's always going to be very unpopular. I mean, it's, it's very difficult politics. Well, it depends who you ask. Right. Black people want it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we talked about how it's a democracy before, and at the end of the day, it's one of these very divisive issues, and people just kind of recoil from it. I t- you know, you can go in and you make the case, and then people are like, oh, well, and, you know, it's just very Why divisive. do you think that is? Why do I think it's so dramatic? Why do you think it's so dramatically unpopular? Well, you know, I looked at that. I looked at that stat, and it said that they had $10 million, and it's 300000 going out. And it's just sort of, it reminds me, you know, it's a very small thing, but it reminds me that, like, social programs get very popular when they're not means-tested, when they're not for one group of people, but they're for everybody. And, that, you know, you look at Social Security, obviously it's very popular. You can, But this you, is you for know. everybody, and yeah. that's the point. You, to answer your question, the reason why it's not popular with white people, because as I just mentioned, the yeah. post show, it's popular with black people, um, is because the history, there's some gaps there in terms of understanding what the impact of slavery actually was. We made the joke about the Wall Street Journal. Well, there would be no Wall Street without black people. But a lot of Americans don't know that part of the history. They don't understand how important slavery was to financing banks in the early days of this country. And so when people don't have this information and they hear reparations, they think it's a handout. Well, no, actually, it's a delayed check. And there's a clip. Anyone can go Google it. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. eloquently describes why reparations is important. And he talked about how this government helped white immigrants move west, gave them land, built colleges. Yeah help them understand how to till the land and actually grow and take care of themselves. But when it came to actual black people being released from from slavery, uh, we weren't given anything. You, you don't even have to go that far back. You don't even have to go far, that far back because redlining and housing discrimination yep. was rampant in this country well into the 1980s. Yep. And in, in very diverse parts of the country that you wouldn't expect, Chevy Chase, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C., a place I grew up, was established as a white enclave in the Articles of Incorporation for the town. They did not change that until 1988. Absolutely. I grew up a block away. And so, like, for families who have not only been excluded but actually were, in many cases, they've had homes, real estate, et cetera, taken uh, without compensation. There were cases in California of oceanfront property that were owned by black families that were essentially just taken um, and they were never What's given any... the American any- dream? The American dream is owning your home and then you get that and then you can use that in all sorts of ways financially. It, the, the people were barred from doing that in a way that... I want to get Scott in. I, yeah. I know you're skeptical of this. Yeah, look, I, I mean, <laughs> I think the reason it is so dramatically unpopular, you're correct about that, is because most people think it's fundamentally unfair and believe it's divisive and believe it's not the correct way for the country to atone for the issues that I think you have correctly described. I think you're 100% right about uh, the history of this country, but the people that are living today uh, don't feel like they're responsible for things that people did decades or hundreds of years ago. What is the right way to atone? Well, I I think this country has made massive strides in race relations over the last 
Sure, but financially. Right, but that's but not financially. Oh, financially? Well, I told you last week, I, 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 don't, I'm not, I don't believe any reparations program is ever going to be popular enough to be politically viable because most people don't think it is the correct way uh, why, do you keep saying most, why do you keep saying most people when you know what we're talking about? Because I can read a poll. Can you? I yeah, mean, yeah, I can read a poll. Yeah, but, but you, when you say most people, you make it sound as if there's not some variations there that's very easily identifiable. And I went back and I've done several research in terms of Gallup polls. And it's very clear. There's a racial divide on this conversation. Right. And so when you say most people, what you really mean is like a lot of white people. And so let's be honest well, about this conversation. Well, let's be honest about yeah. what kind of country we live in. We all live here together. Yes. And we don't make decisions based on one race gets to decide what to do to the other race or vice versa. We all make decisions together as when Americans. Did that, when did that start? As Americans. When did that start? And so, and so when, did, when you're that, talking that, about, that, well, that, because that, one race, that, because that one you race just wants about, to have when, something happen. When did, when did that start? That's not I'm the just, way it works. I'm just curious. When did that start? This utopia that you just presented where race wasn't an impact in terms of people's lives. I wanna, I'm curious, when did that start in this country? I didn't describe America as a utopia, but right now... Well, what did, a, you, it, what it, what did you say earlier? But you seem to believe that in this country, based on race, we should have people of a certain race making policy decisions for everyone else. Do you but, think that's well, how they do? Because well, the majority of well, Congress. So well, that's actually the objective well, reality of who votes in the election. Well, 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 well that's a whole other conversation. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, Scott, what you were saying that you do think that there needs to be an atonement, but. Wow. We, we, I mean, Evanston is trying to. Fi- Evanston is are, trying to. Are you to arguing do that? that the United States of America hasn't made dramatic strides? That's not the question. Strides are different. That's Over not the, the question. Of this country. The, the question is about financial repar- about the yeah, financial impact it. of, of <laughs> so policy. How, so, so, what does atonement look to you if it's not tied to finances? Then, what does it look like to you? I'm curious. I, I, I mean, I think that this country needs to provide equality to every single American citizen. Yeah, Equality that's, that's, that's of opportunity. Platitude, specifically. No, it's not a platitude. No, it's a, it's it's a, a deeply held value for me and okay, most Americans. Okay, it's a value. How does that value play out legislatively? What does that look like? Because mm-hmm. Evanston has something that's on paper that they're trying to execute. So your world in terms of atonement, I'm just curious. Yeah, and it's, what and does it, that look like and, legislatively? In a grand total of a whopping 16 people were able to take part in this fantastic But I'm asking, idea. About, but I'm asking you fair. about your sense of atonement. If it's not going to be financial, then what do you think should be executed in order to reach this equality that you talk about? I just told you that this country and its government ought to provide every American citizen equal opportunity to succeed. Right, but you period. heard what Nicholas said about how for that has in terms of a generational wealth and the accumulation of generational wealth that hasn't happened. And well, so wouldn't it be helpful to be able very to start specific by having policy some sort of housing grant? Would it be helpful to just redistribute all the wealth? Is that what you're arguing for? No, that's not the same thing. See, you're, you're, see, you're, you're gaslighting the conversation. I'm that's not, actually but, really but, legitimate. But, 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 but everybody at this table is for redistributing No, no, no. Wealth. Oh, Hold on a second. And, and, no, except for me, fair. and I'm the only one in the majority of, of, of any survey. Any survey. It's not Scott, even close. Th- th- that's not fair. But the, you made a really important point, I think, which is about what Americans do and don't understand about what's actually happened. And that is at the core what the reparations conversation has always been, which is that we we have been, and we are having this conversation every week about how much of our history now we're trying to erase from school curriculums, et cetera. The, re- the fact is, is that African-Americans have been systemically, consistently excluded from the ability to build wealth for decades. And there should be a serious conversation about what that means for them and about what how we solve that problem, not just with platitudes, to LZ's point, but with policy. On that note, uh, thank you all for this conversation. And we'll be right back. 
before we go, tomorrow on CNN This Morning, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre joins to talk about how the White House will respond to the deadly shooting in Nashville. Tune in for that at 7 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now.